All right. Hi, everybody. Um, Hi. You know, I mean, I'm sure, Felicia, you've talked to, I'm going to say Miss Miller. Brandy? Brandy, there you go. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. And, you know, I've had conversation with Miss Kidd for our um, podcast about misinformation and autism, right? And mm -hmm. so I just want to do some quick introductions real fast. I'm Rachel. I teach third grade math and science, general education. I am Felicia. I'm a general education first grade teacher. Go ahead, Brandy. I am Brandy or Brandis Miller. Um, I am an ESE teacher here at Woodville. And I this year I do second grade, third grade, and fifth grade. That's a big mix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am... Um, Lee Kid by performing name Alex. I'm the art teacher at Rudiger, so I have K through five, the whole school. Yes, <laughs> she does art on a cart, which is very impressive because art oh, on a cart. Yeah, not today. today was not. It's difficult. Okay, the other person is showing up now. Jessica Andrews, is that who we're looking for? Yeah. Okay. So we'll let her introduce herself when she gets in here. Definitely has been a hectic day. I think it's because the break is coming up. April Fools, maybe? Oh, I wish it was April. <laughs> it, well, it is April Fools. Oh, yeah, it is. But it, 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 it. <laughs> let me put it this way: I wish lots of things today were just pranks. I. Uh, All right. Let's see. Miss Andrews, are you here? I'm here, yes. Okay, okay, awesome. We were just doing some quick introductions. Um, I'm Rachel Thomas. I teach third grade math and science, general education. You know Felicia, correct? Yes. <laughs> First grade. And then Ms. Miller, will you just go over your intro real quick? She knows me. I've met her a few times. Oh. Okay. <laughs> okay, see, I didn't know. Okay, cool. Hi. And then Ms. Kidd. Hi. He teaches art at my school to K through fifth grade on a cart. Very talented. I, I think that's how we're all rolling right now. Yeah. So we're just going to kind of have a, a brief roundtable discussion. Um, just kind of bounce off of each other, you know, whenever you have a comment, something like that. So basically the purpose of our podcast was to discuss um, misconceptions or misinformation in autism, in the autism community, ASD in general, in the classroom, as a parent, as somebody with autism, um, that kind of thing. So um, just because I haven't heard the whole um, episode yet, Felicia, what did you talk to your so, about? Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead one more time. What did you discuss with your your peoples? So these two people were not on my episode. I had a different parent on my episode, okay. um, but we discussed parenting a child with ASD strategies that they use at home to help their child, um, the diagnostic process that they went through, as well as um, their school experience and how their child was treated at school. Okay. And uh, I'm sorry, Jessica, did you say what you 
what your role is? I'm the reading coach here at Woodville. Okay, 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 okay. So just real quick, Felicia, what was the general uh, conversation? I know you just told me the topics, but like, did your parent had like more positive things to say or? She had some difficulties um, with the school system. She did not like how teachers were treating her student and she felt like they weren't giving them everything that they need. Um, And she had a hard time at home with how people perceive her child and how they treat her child because of that perception. So she had an overall negative experience, but she thinks as her child has gotten older, um, she feels more secure and she has learned things that she can use to help her child and what to tell other people so that they can help um, her child as well. And what's the grade level for the child? Her child is 15 and I believe they're in high school. And when was the diagnosis made? At three, early on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, well, that's interesting um, because when I think of, I thought you were talking about a much younger child, mm-hmm. but um, I think this happens a lot that people are really well-meaning when, they, when a child first gets a diagnosis and they're like, I've seen this, try this. You should do this. They should not eat this. How about this? Did she experience any of those fad things? Well, I think overall, the community that she interacted with, they didn't have a lot of information on ASD. So she kind of had to do a lot of research for herself and um, find things that she thought would be helpful in trial and error until she found something that worked best. Because a lot of the people around her didn't really know anything about ASD, including her family members. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it seems that she also had to kind of fight with the school system a little bit too in mm-hmm. order to get the services. I'm assuming the student has an IP or government. Well, ultimately she chose to do homeschooling. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Miss um, Kidd, you have an interesting story. You want to chime in on your experience? Sure. Um, well, I was originally diagnosed with just ADHD. I was diagnosed later in life, I want to say 20, 19, 20, because it's a little bit blurry, uh, with ASD. Um, growing up, my mom was always told there was probably something more going on, but they would never give her a better diagnosis. Um, but I was always also really smart. I ended up uh, getting gifted and an IEP. Um, but my mother actually had to fight the school system tooth and nail for all of the accommodations that I got. Uh, my mom actually became an attorney because of me and my brother. Uh, actually, sorry, she was an attorney, but she switched practices. She at first only did adoptions, but switched to educational advocacy because of us. Um, she became known downtown as that Wellington woman because of how many times she had to see school board on behalf of children like myself and uh, her other clients just to get the services that should be offered without having to fight for them. So um, I would not be where I was today if it wasn't for my mom. Mm-hmm. And I also have uh, three kids myself, all of who are uh, neurodiverse, but not autistic, but definitely have issues, but who are also exceptionally bright. Um, And I feel like sometimes I have to fight for services for them um, to get them the help they need to help them succeed in school. I've never felt like it's been easy to get them services at school. from middle school up, my mom made me sit in my meeting so I would know what was going on. I could be able to advocate for myself. And 
that really helped me when I got to college and basically really didn't have to do it all on my own. My mom unfortunately passed away in 2007 from cancer. So I just try to make her proud. And you do, this kid. Thank you. I love your story. It's, it's you know, for people coming from different backgrounds, it's, it's interesting and informative to hear the experience of somebody who's actually li literally gone through it. Yeah, and I feel like if I had gotten a diagnosis sooner, I honestly would have possibly gotten more services that maybe might have helped a little bit more. I definitely had a, a very hard time socially growing up. Um, I still to this day have a hard time making friends, but I at least have a small group of people who get me, so it helps. Well, and I think too, like it's so interesting how much of our conversation is about like services and how so often it's like required that it all be very like technical when a lot of times like what we're really talking about are things that are just like adjustments and things that we can be making for students that don't like doesn't have to be official all of the time like I think that's part of where we get caught up is that you know there are there are we talked about this when we were talking about this Felicia about how just learners in general like are not all the same and so like part of the viewpoint that we need to like work on with teachers is that flexibility and that like that's okay like without like even before or sometimes be depending on family opinions and things like that there's not always going to be a label and there's not always that's not always going to be there and it doesn't mean that we can't help meet the needs and like educate ourselves on things that we can be doing in our classrooms outside of the services and things that that we can offer mm -hmm. <clears throat> for, for me growing up, I feel like that even when I had that IEP in place mm -hmm. and I knew what my accommodations were supposed to be, that even me as a student had to kind of argue with my teacher to get the things that should have been offered to me without having to ask. And so for me as a student, I felt frustrated at times as well. I'm sure. And that brings I think that we see that. Mm -hmm. That brings up a point that I kind of wanted to talk about is that as far as misconceptions go, I think a lot of times, um, especially with students with ASD um, or what people might call higher functioning or you know whatever, it kind of like slips under the rug. But also I think the attitude of some general education teachers is that that's the special education teacher's job. You know, and I think there needs to be a, stronger collaboration between general ed and special education teachers because like for example at our school we do we don't do like a pull out where we push in and it's very inclusive and so we try to work as closely with you know our special educator counterparts as much as possible but changing the opinion of some some teachers is I mean that's hard like that's not that's not my responsibility. You give them this, or or they're just not even aware. Even though you know some kids might have IEPs or five hundred fours, but not taking the time to actually go through it, they might go the whole year without even getting what they're supposed to get. Yeah. Yes. So I'll chime in now. <laughs> I was like, "That's your cue, girl." Yeah. Um. Yes. So I think one of the biggest things too. So we're kind of 
Um, well, especially because of COVID and stuff, depending on numbers, we're kind of both. So fifth grade, I'm inclusive. I go into the classroom. Sometimes I pull them if I need to. Um, second grade, I pull. In third grade, I pull. If I can't go in, I go in. Um, so I try to work closely with my teachers um, as a whole, but also obviously specifically the teachers that my kids are in, um, because if they're departmentalized, then I work with all of them, obviously. Um, and it is really hard sometimes to explain um, or have, because we work, we have things that we have to specifically work on with them. So they have an IEP for a reason because they are working on things that they need to work on at their level. Usually if we're talking academic, I'm academic. Um, and I think that a lot of the time general education teachers have a really hard time with their miss, especially if they're pulled out, that they're missing that time and that I'm supposed to be the support for them. Like I'm just supposed to help the ESE or the students that are ESE with what they're doing in the classroom when that's not really at all what I'm supposed to be doing. Like not, not directly. I'm supposed to be helping them individually with what they need help with, not with what they're doing in the classroom, which is the whole, if, and if that was the case, then like, that's kind of what interventions are for. So like the intervention is supposed to be helping them in the classroom. Um, and I feel like sometimes it's really hard for general education teachers to understand that. And I get it because especially when they are pulled out, they are missing some time. Um, but the whole point is to close. So there's a gap and the whole point is to close that gap rather than make it bigger. Um, obviously, ideally, you want to kind of do both. So I try to support with what they're doing in the classroom as much as I can with also hitting on their goals. If I don't hit on their goals and if I don't meet them where they're at, then we'll never close that gap. <laughs> um, so just kind of going off of the collaboration part there. I think some teachers have a hard time with that. Some are, and that kind of goes back to the whole flexibility thing. Um, some don't care at all, like any time of the day, they're like, no, if you need them, you need them, that's fine. Um, or if you wanna come in here, that's fine. And then others, it's really, really hard for them to wrap their heads around, well, if they miss this, then I don't know, flexibility, I guess kind of comes down to that <laughs> both sides um yeah not as much directly because I teach math and science but my counterpart who teaches reading that's where the bulk of all her pullout comes but it's interventions it's ESE services it's speech and language so I she has some kids a good handful that are being pulled out three different times out of her classroom they're in class maybe 20 30 minutes and you know I understand how she feels too. Um, but unfortunately, there's not enough hours in the day to do everything. Right. You have to pick and choose sometime and they have to receive their services. Well, and I think too, like part of our conversation, like when we were talking about that, we were going to have this discussion um, was that we talked about like, there's a lack of of knowledge and a lack of education, I think, for a lot of general ed teachers about like a being able to identify those gaps and like like really understanding what those kids are struggling with and so I think that also makes it harder for them to understand what you're doing when when you pull them out so like to them what they're doing in the classroom 
if they just keep doing it, like the kids will get it. And, and like what we're saying by staffing these kids and, and putting these other services is that no, like what we're doing in the classroom isn't going to eventually get them there. And so that's why we need them to have this additional time. And I think it's that, that lack of understanding is part of what is like a barrier for them to be able to see why it's so important that they leave. Because what, what we're really saying by staffing them is that our core isn't ever going to work for them, like not that alone. And I think once you understand that, it's a lot easier to let go of that core time with them because that wasn't working anyways. And so like, but but you have to be able to accept that, that like it's not just longer would have made it. <laughs> and I think a lot of gen ed teachers would agree with you. However, at the same time, a lot of times you have admin breathing on your neck about grades. If they're not in your class, how can you give them grades? You know what I'm saying? And so that's what makes it a little iffy. Um, but anyway, um, real quick, I just wanted to bring up because Ms. Kidd and I, we really had a great conversation. What we talked about was um, kind of like the, the misconception or misinformation that autism is a boy's disorder, like more boys than girls. I remember growing up, my mom being told I had pieces of autism, but not enough for diagnosis. I remember hearing that a few different times, but also at the same time, not having, um, she didn't get answers when she would ask questions to, I don't even remember at this point how many different doctors she dragged me off to, but I know I've had MRIs done, blood tests done, all kinds of things. She's trying to find answers for me, help me out. Um, I remember in high school, she took me to see a therapist for neurofeedback therapy, and that did actually help me. Um, I was on medication from the age of seven through my junior year. Um, I did have accommodations in place for like untimed testing and things like that. And that did actually help me because once that stress of, oh, I have a time limit was gone, I actually usually finished before the time limit would have been up. But when I had that limit in place, it's like I panicked and couldn't do my work. Um, but also I was really smart, but I also wasn't being challenged in my classes. So I was behavior issue because I was bored, like really, really bored. Um, in second grade, they actually skipped me ahead to fifth grade ELA because I was that far ahead of my peers. They don't do that anymore. Uh, third grade, they sent me to fifth grade again because they didn't know what to do with me. And fourth and fifth grade, I stayed where I was at and was challenged. And I say that lightly because I really wasn't. Um, I remember being made fun of, not just for my behavior, but I also had eczema really bad growing up. It's gotten a lot better, but basically it was on my lips and my hands, uh, mostly caused by food allergies. It thankfully has improved as I've gotten older, but that was definitely a source of teasing for a lot of kids. And it didn't help that I didn't really know how to interact with people. Right. And I know now why is I, I really struggle with reading social cues about knowing how to respond to certain situations. Um, I tend to overshare and say too much. Um, what I, my friends jokingly call foot and mouth syndrome. Um, and I just remember feeling like no one understood me. Sorry. It's okay. And we talked about, oh, we talked about masking a lot too, because um, oh, I, I tried really hard to hide, like make myself think like bite the tongue, don't say anything a lot of the time or, or just try to copy what I thought were behaviors that people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And, and that can be um, I also have to really work on 
um, focusing on modulating my volume and my speed, because if I don't, I talk really fast and really loud. But if I'm not actively thinking about it, I get a lot of people going, telling me, oh, you're too fast or you're too loud or whatever. So mm-hmm. my kids are loud because of me. <laughs> <laughs> and like the whole, you know, misconception that autism is a boy's disorder um, or more boys are diagnosed with autism than girls kind of thing. It's like the comorbidity rate is so much higher in girls. And so a lot of times that secondary or pro- even might even be primary, like it just kind of overshadows or girls are emotional. They're loud anyway. They act, you know, they, that, that's just how they act, you know, um, those kind of things aren't picked up as often. Doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. And so I'm sure there are girls who have felt exactly like you, Ms. Kid. And I really thank you for sharing your story because it brings Oh, that's the whole podcast name is keep the inform and information. So you are informing. The- well, I remember reading an article recently. I wish I could find it again about a girl like in her twenties with autism and um, about masking. And then like, I was reading through this like checklist she had of like symptoms and in the social category, every single one, I was like, this is me, 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 me on every single box. I was like, wow, this is like, I could have written at least this part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, to wrap up, um, I just want people to kind of sound off a little bit on this, you know, for this class that we're doing the podcast for, we talked about misinformation or disinformation, the differences, the similarities. And I think, unfortunately, and I see it in my school, and I didn't think about it until I had this class where you pick up on things that other teachers say, or even admin says, or, you know, anybody where it's like, that is totally not true. So how do you, we combat educa- uh, misinformation in an education setting, like with peers and stuff? Would you feel comfortable saying, you know, that's, you know, that is misinformation or that's not quite true. This is what actually it is, you know? I'll go. Um, I mean, I think that now in the position that I'm in, that is like part of my role here. And so I've become a lot more comfortable and like confident in, in my knowledge, right. Of, of being able to just really easily be like, no, like, but, or, and I think I always do that thing of like, but is that really what it is? (laughs) Like, let's think about that. Um, but I think when I was a classroom teacher, the, the best way for me was just to at least come at it through like, well, I have experienced this and this and this, and to be able to, to at least share uh, the way that I experienced whatever it was they were talking about, especially if it was like different and I felt relatively confident that that was misinformation, then it, I could try to, to change the way they thought about it by at least sharing like a different way that I had experienced whatever it was that they were talking about. I would have for me um this is my fifth year and I am very confident in certain things but I'm obviously well I will always be learning about other things but I am still obviously learning about a lot um I 
I think it depends on the situation for me. Um, but absolutely, if it's something that I think could impact, if it's something that they said that I think could impact somebody else's life, then I would correct them. Um, but I, I would, I like to have exam, kind of like based off experiences, I wouldn't just say, um, no, that's not right. Or that's misinformation. Um, I would want to have proof or evidence as to, to explain to them as to why, um, why is that not correct? Or why may that not be correct? Um, and how they could say it differently in the future too, um, or use it in the future. And just so that they're, and I mean, if they decide not to, or if they don't believe me, then that's fine or if whatever. But, um, for me though, I, I think that that would be the most important part and what they said, how much of it or what exactly was not correct. And as long as I can share that and I share just, just because of like Miss Kid, like if it, if they were talking to somebody else or if somebody's around them and they heard them and it wasn't right or it could hurt somebody else or affect somebody else's life, like that's where it would for sure not be okay, I guess with me. Um, and I would make sure to correct them. Because I think, I mean, like with ASD, I feel like behavior um, is something that can be very misconstrued um, just broadly. So, and behavior itself is a very broad term. Um, mm -hmm. But just like in ASD, it's very broad as well. And sometimes non-existent, whereas other people don't think so <laughs> if they just think of ASD along with many other things. <laughs> um, yeah. So. Well, touching on the behavior piece, I did have a few behavioral issues, mostly in elementary. And as I got older, they did get better. I was able to, you know, self-regulate a little bit better, but that was something I definitely struggled with all through school. It's something that my, my two daughters both struggle with as well, but they only had diagnosis right now of ADHD. And I don't know if there is anything else going on, but they definitely both struggle with self-regulation skills. It has gotten better as it's gotten older. I do have a nephew that is diagnosed ASD. Um, he's diagnosed around age, I want to say five. Um, definitely was not early diagnosis, even though we all kind of suspected something going on. Um, he's definitely very high functioning. He's very, very smart. But he's also had um, behavioral issues that have gotten better as he's gotten older. Um, they live now in Cape Coral, so I don't get to see him very often. But I remember him being little and just having these meltdowns out of nowhere and just really not being able to control his emotions something would set him off and he would just you know melt down basically and then as he's gotten older i've watched him be able to grow and and just catch himself and calm himself down sometimes with cues from his parents or teachers but just the growth i've seen in him over the last 10 years is really amazing and i'm really proud of him um but I don't think that he would be where he's at if it wasn't for the support of his parents. His mother is actually an ESC teacher like you. Mm. And um, she actually has her, um, her master's in special education, I believe. Um, and she has helped me as well, just because, because I got my diagnosis later in life and she went to high school with me, um, was able to give me more information on how to help myself. Any final thoughts, Felicia? Yeah, I think as we end, it's just important to kind of talk about a framework that we can use to refute misinformation. Brandy did a really good job um, 
explaining how she does. And I think it's kind of similar to the framework that we learned um, in our class. But the first thing you want to do is explain why that mistaken information was initially thought to be correct. So you don't want to automatically go off, like she said, and be like, hey, that's wrong, because that's going to throw some people off and that's going to make them upset. So when you explain why it was initially thought, it kind of makes them feel like, okay, I was right about that, but you know, I need to learn more things. And then you want to share why the information is wrong in general with some specific evidence and uh, sources to support that. And then lastly, you want to be able to provide an alternative explanation for them and explain why that explanation is correct, not just explain what it is, so that we can um, help them change their frame of thought for whatever they're talking about. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Thank you all for joining us. Um, you had some, um, some great viewpoints and perspectives from all over the place. And uh, I think we had a really nice conversation. <laughs>